This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the broader field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. In his thrilling and sparkling new book, Medieval Empires and the Cultures of Competition, Literary Duels at Islamic and Christian Courts, Samuel England, Assistant Professor of Arabic at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, analyzes with remarkable nimbleness the interaction of literature, politics, and power in medieval imperial settings. Effortlessly traversing from Buyid Baghdad to Spain and Italy, England shows ways in which literary competition, especially in poetry, pollinated imperial visions and fissures of political sovereignty. Literature and literary duels performed in the space of the imperial court, England convincingly argues, were critical to the assemblage of medieval imperial sovereignty. This finely written book will interest and delight scholars of literature, religion, politics and history. Students of Arabic will especially appreciate the copious exhibition of wonderful Arabic poetry littered throughout the text. Here now is my conversation with Professor Samuel England. Hello, Sam. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm very glad to be here. Uh, Well, Sam, thank you so much for your time and for coming on New Books in Islamic Studies. Uh, You've written such a phenomenal uh, book that I think will be widely read by scholars of Islam, Arabic literature, uh, European literature, and really you've tried to combine multiple fields and scholarly conversations in such a masterful way. So really, I enjoyed this book and look forward to our conversation. Uh, Sam, we actually have a tradition on New Books in Islamic Studies that our first question is always biographical. Uh, Could you share with our listeners how you became a scholar interested in uh, Arabic, in uh, sort of Muslim societies, and uh, how you got to write this book. Could you share with us uh, the journey, your journey as a scholar, how you become a scholar interested in these topics? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, so I guess if I start with my first exposure to Arabic, it was it was precisely the experience of not learning Arabic. It was the fact that I had lived in the Middle East, I'd lived in Egypt in the 1980s, and um, I was there for a couple of years and had a sort of typical, I would say, pretty sheltered expatriate life there for the, the couple of years I was there. I went to an American school and didn't learn a lot of Arabic. I came back and 
you know, little by little, I was growing up and, and I went to college and I was interested in languages. And um, I thought, well, it'd be really good to get back to Middle East, get back to Egypt and see what that was all about and sort of experience as a slightly less, you know, innocent uh, kid. And um, luckily, you know, I was, I was at a university with a good Arabic program, a very good Arabic program, um, the University of Michigan. And it was extremely challenging um, to, to kind of get involved in this language now as a sort of academic topic of study. I remember doing very poorly uh, in my first class, uh, but little by little, I decided that it really was something for me. And um, I, you know, wanted to, 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 to use the language in, in Egypt. So I had a sort of goal of, of, of travel that helped to sort of sustain me through some of the, the rigors of the language. And I ended up being a, a major uh, in Arabic, getting my BA, um, traveling a good deal in the Middle East and, um, and, and working a, a bit on comparative literature, which then ended up being my, my field of study when I was in graduate school. Terrific. So, Sam, perhaps we could begin with a broad uh, question uh, with which you could perhaps uh, introduce uh, to our listeners the key uh, themes, sites, and the kind of intervention that you're making in this book. So, if you could perhaps combine uh, some kind of an introduction to, you know, the time period, the kinds of uh, uh, imperial uh, uh, networks that you're looking at uh, in this book, the context and the and the sites, but also perhaps uh, comment a bit on this underlying conceptual argument that I saw running throughout the book, which was the relationship between poetry, literature, and imperial sovereignty or imperial order. And you really make a fascinating point that in some ways what you're showing in this book is the interaction of literature and politics uh, in in really interesting and nuanced ways. Uh, So perhaps if you could just introduce uh, uh, the book and this underlying conceptual theme and argument that that underlies it. Sure. Um, Well, I think you have a couple of claims that are quite easy to make and a lot of scholars have made in, in previous decades. Um, one is that uh, medieval leaders and, and politically sort of uh, prominent uh, people in the Middle Ages were very concerned with their empires and with the um, military uh, borders of, of their empire and, and maintaining sovereignty. So that's an easy claim to make. Another easy claim to make is that they were obsessed with their own cultural standing, how they appeared to other members of the court, how they appeared to other courts, um, how well their their diplomatic machinery worked, um, what kind of literature was written in their names, and how it made them look. That's another easy claim to make. And what I thought to do with this book was sort of bring those together, which I, I think we've done insufficiently um, in in medieval studies. I think there were a couple of real sort of uh, breakthroughs in um, um, studies of, of classical ancient uh, literature. Uh, I remember reading uh, a book by Leslie Kirk, um, The Traffic in Praise, which, uh, you know, sort of demonstrated quite vividly how um, institutions that were paramilitary, like the Olympics, were intimately tied to praise poetry. Um, and, you know, we, we are making those claims little by little uh, in uh, medieval studies. Uh, but I think one of the really important claims that remain to be made is, is that this is an explicitly uh, comparative uh, kind of uh, approach to, to the Middle Ages and um, that it is entirely legitimate and interesting to ask these sort of imperial questions about not just Arabic literature in an Arab context, but also Arabic literature as it was being sort of uh, uh, dominated by people who are not native speakers of Arabic, uh, people like like the the Boyhids or the Buyids. 
Uh, similarly, with with uh, you know romance traditions uh, in in Spain, as I, I talk about in the latter chapter in the book. And of course, uh, the entire uh, process of, of the Crusades, I argue, uh, in the book was was uh, largely a, a, a literary, uh, cultural campaign. So I, I, I saw these as, as kind of um, available points of new ground uh, to break, and I think that's what what motivated me through the, the years of writing. Now, one other sort of broad conceptual intervention that you make throughout this book is your insistence on the argument that one cannot look at these pre-modern archives according to the assumptions and binaries of modern uh, politics and, uh, you know, this binary between looking at these empires either as champions of multiculturalism or as essentially uh, uh, promoting some kind of religious difference, that these are inherently modern assumptions that we can't impose on these pre-modern archives. Could you talk a bit about this underlying conceptual uh, argument that you make throughout the book? In what ways do you find this book interrupting uh, the imposition uh, uh, or the uh, mobilization of modern binaries and assumptions on the kind of pre-modern archive that uh, that you're looking at? Well, okay, part of, part of the formation of um, medievalist uh, in Arabic and, and Romance is to study uh, Andalus and um, that's you know in, in very much a, a worthwhile uh, field in which to, to uh, view arguments of multiculturalism and as you know I'm sure you're aware but maybe it would be helpful for some listeners to kind of walk through um, moments in the uh, mid part of the 20th century and then later in the 1980s and 90s where you had these multicultural scholars, very prominent multicultural scholars like Américo Castro and later uh, Maria Rosa Menocal, um, who uh, were deeply interested in, in what they considered to be restoring the um, multicultural identity of um, Andalusi culture. And I have a lot of respect for those efforts that they made. Um, I think, though, that we've had a sort of, uh, it's left us with a, a, a little bit of a limited vocabulary uh, of discussing the, the, the court cultures as they, as they existed then. I mean, they tended to constantly, no matter how multicultural they were, multi-ethnic they were, in the arts and in the literature that they produced, um, constantly try to uh, argue that there was, you know, a, a singular tradition that they were appealing to. Whether they were actually doing that is a different question. But the, the literature that, that they produced, um, and I don't know, you'd have to ask an art historian, but perhaps in some of the visual arts that they produced and in their uh, manuscript traditions, um, they're, they're constantly saying, well, look, there, there are uh, kind of a singular, uh, there's a singular set of criteria that we're appealing to, and that has to do with, uh, you know, beautiful Arabic. It has to do with the soundness of uh, our rhetoric. It has to do with the standing of a particular, you know, poet who I've just hired. Um, and, and and so, you know, they, they, they were not themselves, you know, great advertisers of, advertisers of any kind of uh, multiculturalism. Uh, that is, you know, as, as you pointed out, very much a, a, a sort of uh, modern lexicon uh, that we've used. And I think it was very helpful in the context of politics in the mid-20th century, in the late-20th century. Um, but if we're going to take, you know, seriously the call of, uh, of medieval studies, um, I, I think that it's very useful to evaluate the, the, the rhetoric and the, the poetic production uh, of these courts as they existed at the time. And they tended to sort of present themselves as, as, as being textual monocultures. I'm not saying that's what they were. I'm saying that that's, that's how they talked about themselves. 
Now let's move to some specific contexts that you explore in the different chapters of this book. Let's begin uh, with the chapter on uh, Buyid, uh, Baghdad, and the, uh, what happens with forms of poetry and literature with the emergence of Buyid power. Uh, could you talk a bit about the kinds of shifts and continuities from earlier Abbasid forms of literature that you find with the emergence of Buyid power in Baghdad. And you make an especially very interesting point that this distinction between administrative and artistic forms of literature sometimes is framed as too much of a binary, that there is a cross-pollination between them that you try to capture. So could you give us some examples of the kinds of literary production that you find uh, in Buyid Baghdad and how that relates to uh, Buyid attempts at uh, maintaining some degree of political order and, and sovereignty? Sure, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you have this, this big breakthrough in, in the secondary uh, level of, of political authority in the Abbasid Empire of Viziers, and, and Viziers um, coming not only to, to speak for uh, whatever kind of uh, princes, the, the emirs, the Buyid emirs, who they work for, but essentially creating their, their own semi-autonomous uh, courts, and their courts being um, eventually the most uh, powerful and productive and dynamic courts in, in the empire. Um, if, if you take um, Abul Fadl, Abul Fadl ibn al-Amir, um, as the, what I would call the, the kind of, you know, great vizier to, to break through, I mean, he, he was uh, mostly known for his prowess uh, in, in composing prose, and he could be extremely um, uh, persuasive and, and, and um, magisterial in, in prose. He was known for being this kind of uh, prose uh, master. And, you know, what I argue in the book is that he expanded the vocabulary by which um, not only viziers were judged, but by which uh, writers themselves uh, were judged in, in the 10th century or 10th century um, CE anyway. Um, now, after that breakthrough, I think that the um, the idea of a vizier, of, a, of an extraordinarily uh, powerful and sometimes conniving um, vizier uh, became its, its, its own kind of institution uh, in the medieval empire and then incidentally was reproduced in all sorts of orientalist representations in the, in the modern era. Um, I mean, if you, if you look at, you know, a Disney film like Aladdin, the figure of Jafar, you know, but based on, on, on a, a, an Abbasid vizier is, is that kind of, uh, is that kind of fiction? Well, that fiction has its roots <laughs> a long time ago in, in, uh, in, in these medieval productions and in the sort of fascinating medieval personalities who were hassling each other through prose or were writing this kind of aggressive uh, type of poetry in order to uh, intimidate one another uh, or to um, show how, how great their Arabic was and how they shouldn't really be thought of as, as Persians per se anymore or Iranians per se anymore, even though that's what they were because they, they, they dominated an Arab court. The Arab court was essentially theirs at that point. Now, the, the next uh, chapter of the book is uh, titled The Sovereign and the Foreign Creating Saladin in Arabic Literature of the Counter-Crusade. I was wondering, Sam, if you could elaborate a bit on this category of counter-crusade uh, that you mobilize in this chapter. And, 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 and tell us a bit about ways in which, uh, again, literary production uh, in this uh, uh, context was really uh, aimed at garnering the authority of the ruler, in this case, Saladin. And you really make this interesting argument about relationships 
relationship between uh, literature and the assemblage of uh, of the sovereign's power, uh, basically. Uh, so could you tell a bit about this category of the counter-crusade and, and then this underlying argument that, uh, uh, that, that you present and advance in this chapter? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the the political parallel I would draw between what goes on in the first chapter there, what I'm discussing, the the, the very end of um, about Bessid sovereignty, and in the second chapter where I'm talking about, as you say, the the, the counter crusade, is that you have a regime coming out of um, a, a momentary political uh, vacuum in which uh, the caliph has become very weak. So not only had uh, the Abbasid caliphate sort of um, begun to 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 wither and 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 be subject to control in the late Abbasid Empire. Uh, in Egypt, you have this uh, Fatimid caliphate that was really extremely feeble by the time that Salahuddin kind of rose through the the ranks of uh, of, of of Levantine and and, and Egyptian military uh, service or military uh, officer corps. So when you know when when he emerges. Uh, I would say that the sort of political scene in in Islamic institutions along the Mediterranean coast there from from Egypt up through northern Syria was really ripe for um, for an intervention like his or an intervention like like you know that, that of, of of him and and his uh, kind of uh, other Kurdish military experts um, and what they needed, of course, in addition to being very smart militarily and, and being good at, at assembling armies and, and eventually, you know, um, dominating forts and, and towns and garrisons and cities that had been controlled by crusaders, what they needed in addition to that uh, was a certain amount of cultural legitimacy in Arabic. They were very intensely interested in Arabic literature. And this is, I think, a really understudied uh, element of what went on through through centuries of, of counter-crusading. Um and so, you know, what I wanted to do was investigate this this poetry, but also um, prose. The kind of, you know, what they call bellet, uh, meant to, to 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 glorify this regime, uh, to create a, a useful figure of a crusader, who, of course, in this in this literature would eventually become dominated by Islamic forces, and to create a, a persona of Salahuddin where it essentially had not uh, existed before. You know, when he made his um, when he made his intervention uh, politically, he was very much in need of, of the kind of uh, personality that a great uh, court patron would need to have. He needed to have anecdotes about him. He needed to have, you know, praise poetry. He needed to to have uh, a sort of system of of hijet of of, uh, of satirical poetry, most of which was written about uh, about uh, Franks and, and Crusaders, but but not all of it. Some of it was was his kind of more internal uh, enemies in in Egypt. Um, and, and that project, there's very little scholarship on it, uh, at least in, in English. And so this was actually one of the, the, the most exciting and, and I should say fun uh, parts of writing this book. It was really something that I, I hadn't known very much about uh, before and found that there, there was a lot of room to, to, to really say something new. Terrific. As uh, before, I ask uh, the next question. I would, uh, you know, just mention this uh, for the benefit of our listeners: is that one of the great features of this book is that you also present uh, in copious uh, uh, detail and instances actual text from the Arabic uh, uh, sort of poetry and other forms of uh, uh, 
uh, Hija and other kinds of literature that you're looking at. So it really is a very nice reader also in some ways for students of uh, Arabic and those those who are invested in these in these traditions. So I think that was a really great uh, sort of aesthetic move that you made in terms of the production of this book. Um, well, thank uh, you. I mean, it's, it's kind of you to say. I don't I don't pretend that I have anything to teach you about uh, classical Arabic, but uh, it's, it's sweet of you to say. So let's now move to the, the theater of uh, 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 Spanish uh, courts and the context of uh, Alfonso the Tenth, and let's come back to the conversation with which we began uh, this uh, uh, this interview, uh, which mm-hmm. was ways in which you complicate this understanding of looking at pre-modern figures and empires as champions of multiculturalism, and you make the point that Alfonso the Tenth, in uh, a lot of modern scholarship, is precisely looked at in that in those terms as a paragon or champion of multiculturalism. But you rather show that in some ways he used poetic language as a way of uh, developing a certain narrative of conquest and uh, what you argue and here I quote from the book as a way of demarcating and enforcing rules of difference. So could you tell us a bit about this argument and ways in which you complicate this picture of Alfonso X as some kind of a champion of uh, uh, medieval uh, multiculturalism? Um, well, I, I think um, the label of multicultural and the sort of uh, facility with which it's been applied over the past, let's say, five decades, one of the problems with that is that it suggests that um, cultures sort of uh, mingle and, and, and create this new sort of interesting synthesis, you know, something that's more than the sum of its parts culturally. Um, and so I, I think with that, that statement of trying to enforce rules of difference, what I'm trying to say about uh, about Alfonso in particular was that um, his court was extremely multivalent. It was it was it was culturally multivalent and, and uh, linguistically uh, multivalent. He has this side of his poetry, um, you know, completely in in the language of Galician Portuguese, the sort of dominant lyrical language of Iberia uh, during this period, during the the, the 13th century, um, in which um, you know he he. he praises the, the Virgin Mary. He has this huge songbook, uh, Cantigas de Santa Maria, sort of extremely well covered in scholarship. And then he has this relatively small collection of, of uh, satirical uh, poems, songs, also in Galician Portuguese, uh, which came to be called Cantigas de Escarnio, y Maldicer, so the Cantigas of, of, of insult, of the Cantigas of... of um, of denigrating uh, other courtiers or denigrating uh, Arab Muslims, etc. That's really not well covered uh, in in critical scholarship today. And uh, what, what's interesting, if if you take these these cantigas kind of as a as a whole, if you if you um, you know view them panoptically. You see that that not only is he, um, you know, very conscious of, of seeming powerful uh, through these cantigas, um, he's also, uh, in, you know, always very vulnerable. makes makes a, a lot of statements of, of sort of regrets and 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 talks about what he wishes that uh, he could have fulfilled the promises to to Mary that he could have fulfilled, um, including pilgrimage, including pilgrimage to to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem takes on enormous weight. Uh, in in this poetry, and he sort of uh, can be very hard on himself or criticize himself, and also take this this um, this uh, prospect um, in in poetry, in which he says, "Well, at at some point, our uh, kingdom, our our uh, empire, um, is going to plant a, a flag in Jerusalem." 
just as we always wanted, or at some point I will, um, I will be buried in, in Jerusalem as would be, uh, fitting. Um, in the, the, the poems in which he's, he's uh, criticizing or making fun of people, one of the people he makes fun of are his own knights for being very bad at crusading, for being very bad at, 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 at fighting Muslims. Um, I think it's not only appropriate, but it's necessary to talk about these, these, the, the, the songbook, the sort of proper songbook of, of, of praise of, the, of Virgin Mary, together with um, this kind of in, insulting, seemingly sort of uh, lowbrow or, or, or uh, body uh, type, type poetry. Um, I'm not the first scholar to do it, but, but what I think my book does that's new uh, is talks about all of this as a form of, of crusader poetry. Terrific. Uh, let's uh, now move to yet another site, another sort of uh, archive that you look at, which is uh, the writings of Iberian and Italian authors, uh, uh, which you look at in chapter four of this book. And you really show ways in which these authors adapted and repackaged Saladin in ways that brought out new dimensions of his uh, persona as a leader. And um, uh, you say this in the book, and I quote here from page 141, you say, utilizing him as a liminal border-crossing agent, late medieval romance texts opened a complex literary discussion on who best represented the court and whether the court would continue to sustain high culture. So could you speak a bit about ways in which this repackaging of Saladin and adaptation of Saladin uh, happened and some dimensions of that at the hands of these Iberian and Italian authors whom you examine in uh, the next uh, chapter? Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the premise of this chapter and the premise really of, of, of ending the book this way is that the um, failure from a perspective of a, of a Christian in Europe, the failure of the Crusades uh, was extremely productive um, for views upon the Holy Land, who inhabited the Holy Land, who had a legitimate claim to the Holy Land, and, and um, you know, who needed to be kicked out or, or killed uh, there. So um, Salah Hadin, you know, is this uh, historical figure who becomes then a, um, a fabulous figure, becomes a, a, a character of fable. And um, in, you know, uh, poetry, in narrative uh, fables, in, in anecdotes, um, Salah Hadin acquires all of this complexity in in European literature, in, in, in literature that, that, that was composed in, in Romance languages, and for that matter, you know, languages that that I don't discuss in the book in, in the Germanic tradition, um, in I believe in Anglo-Saxon as well. But in the material that I discuss in, in this chapter, you know, namely these, these uh, Romance uh, languages of um, Southern Europe and, and especially Southwestern Europe, um, you know, he, he's He's, he's, he's very dramatic, and he compels the literary audience and the members of, of these courts as they kind of survey the, the ruins of, of the Crusades um, to, to also kind of question the, the political bodies that had, uh, had organized the Crusades. So things like the papacy uh, and the relationship between um, royal courts uh, and the pope. Uh, the relationships between uh, ethnic groups who had inhabited uh, Europe, you know, the idea of um, Jews in Europe somehow having a, a connection to, uh, to Salah Hadin or being able to speak to him in, in his language, you know, through this kind of very loose association of, uh, of, of their ethnicity or the fact that they would somehow have, have roots in uh, the Holy Land, even though they, they lived in Italy. 
um, of Salah Hadin speaking many languages, of him being sort of a partial member of the court, you know, in Dante's conception, he's uh, he's in limbo. He's he's uh, he's a, a very uh, courtly person. He speaks a courtly language. Dante attributes all that to him, and yet, you know, he, he's definitely not going to make it into to heaven either. He sort of belongs in this uh, in this category with some of the, the great Greek thinkers, you know, who were of course pagans but happened to be very intelligent and helped uh, Dante kind of, uh, you know, imagine what a righteous, intelligent person, uh, intelligent person uh, was. Um, so, you know, I, I guess what it is, is, is to me, you know, Salah going from being a very sort of two-dimensional type figure in, um, in you know, the early Latin chronicles and, and in vernacular languages in Europe, eventually becoming um, this, this you know hugely multifaceted and 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 really interesting uh, character in the in the production of fables and and um, in poetry of of this type that that uh, that, that Dante wrote and the the secular narratives that Boccaccio wrote. Uh, Sam, you conclude uh, this book by coming in to, to the modern period, uh, specifically to the context of uh, 20th century Iraq, and uh, uh, by looking at ways in which. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, uh, uh, whom you sort of call a self-professed uh, modern uh, Saladin, uh, tried to uh, uh, draw on this uh, heritage of Mesopotamia, and this heritage of literary and cultural uh, uh, production to showcase uh, Iraq as an ideal form of a secular uh, polity in the 20th century, and you really focus on two events that were held, and you try to look at some of the complexities and problems associated with ways in which a modern political figure tried to appropriate uh, uh, these pre-modern uh, courtly uh, uh, rituals and forms of uh, poetry. So could you tell us a bit about what these two events were and how this unfolded, uh, what exactly happened, and what uh, kind of a point that you tried to make by uh, ending your book on this, on this uh, note from the modern context? Um, so the, 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 the two events, uh, let me just make sure that I, I, um, I'm clear that the two events are, are uh, one being the Mirpad Festival, is that, is that right? Um, and, and, and the second one to, to your reading, because I'd, I'd actually be quite curious how you, know, how you, how you read this conclusion. The, the Babylon International Festival? Ah, I see. Okay, yeah. Um, so I, 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 I t- tend to talk a lot more about um, Mirbad, and, and to be perfectly frank, I know a lot more about the Mirbad Festival than, than I do about, um, uh, about Babylon. I guess if, if we put them together, you know, you have these, these projects from, from the, the Basis Iraqi Ministry of Culture, uh, from the 1970s on through through the 90s through the beginning of the the decade of the 90s um, to sort of uh, recreate this this uh, either ancient or uh, medieval uh, glory that that they thought of Iraq as as having you take a, a figure like Salahuddin Salahuddin uh, of course, uh, was Kurdish, but you wouldn't hear a uh, a, a Baathist official, and, and certainly not Saddam Hussein. As much as they love to paint, you know, murals of him and and erect statues and um, compare Saddam to to Saladin, they would you know, never attribute uh, to him uh, any of his Kurdishness, even though that you know it's absolutely inseparable from his identity, uh, his life, and his his career. Um, what they always focus on is, is his roots near Tikrit, and of course those, you know, the, the reasons for that would be obvious. They, they brought in, um, you know, these huge numbers of, of artists, of poets, most of whom were, were Arab poets, 
but not exclusively. And um, what they called Orientalists, you know, the, the, the 1970s and 1980s uh, sort of uh, elite of, of professors, of uh, translators of literature. And they, uh, you know, would fly them in at least at least one year in, in 1988, uh, flew them all in on, on the um, uh, budget of, of the Iraqi state, on Iraqi uh, airlines, into Baghdad, and then, you know, got them on buses and such to, to Basra for the, for the Mirabad festival. And they produced all these sort of pamphlets. And, you know, if, if you look at the record of, of Mirabad-related uh, um, publications from Iraq, a huge sort of uh, complex of the proceedings of these, of these conferences, of, of, of research that was presented, and of these praise poems that were presented directly to Saddam Hussein. So I began that, that section, you know, the conclusion of, of the book, I began with, with this question of um, what was it that Saddam was looking at when he came in to, to the room? Because having spoken with one of my, my previous mentors about who had actually attended the Mirabad Festival, he said, you know, Saddam would come in for 15 minutes at a time, an hour at a time and stare off into space. You would kind of stare between... <laughs> I mean, you know, just thinking about that, I mean, you know, you have all these these websites now. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these things, you know, like Kim Jong-il looking at things or, you know, uh, Qaddafi looking at things. And, and you realize, like, that there's a pop culture fascination with... Uh, you know, these self-curious dictators going around and, and, and looking at, you know, looking at, I don't know, ground being broken on the next bridge of, um, you know, of, of wonder and excellence in southern Libya or, you know, lo- looking at uh, a, a statue that's just been, been you know, cast from, from bronze with, you know, them in, in a loose-fitting robe or, or, you know, all of these kind of ridiculous self-important things that, that dictators do. So Saddam, anyway, would receive these poems by, um, you know, taking his, his seat of honor and he'd be there with it, with his entourage and he would stare off just next to the face of whoever the poet was standing up there talking about how great he was. And he would kind of look off in, into the background. And I, you know, I, I just use this as the, as the sort of imaginary of, of what it was he was staring at and, and you know, I end up claiming, I don't want to give too many spoilers here because of course, you know, you want people to buy and read the book, but, um, but, but using that as, as, as my way to kind of uh, argue through the, the end of, uh, of, of the study and to talk about some of the, the, um, some of the stress and some of the self-questioning uh, that, that might occur even to a fascist when, when considering his own court. Uh, Sam, as we're coming to the end of our time, uh, could you uh, perhaps share with our listeners uh, what's the, the next project uh, that you're thinking of uh, doing? You know, I think it's, it's largely motivated from this, this conclusion. I would really like to um, uh, produce a, a, a lengthy study of the role of of the Middle Ages and of, of classical uh, Arab culture in in the formation of, of military state, um, and uh, you know it's it's something I'm beginning now. It could take all sorts of uh, different directions, but but it is certainly the topic that, having left off the project of writing this book and putting in those you know years of work and 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 research and and, and revision and sometimes tearing my hair out, um, this is a topic that still um, really animates me a lot. It's something that, that I'm, I'm still very curious about and, and think that I have uh, a, a lot to learn about. One of the reasons I have a lot to learn about it is, is I don't think that, that we've explored it very much um, in, in contemporary criticism. So, you know, um, stay tuned and, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that uh, in a couple of years I'll, I'll 
to have something uh, more to, to say on it since the conclusion is relatively brief. Medieval Empires and the Culture of Competition, Literary Duels at Islamic and Christian Courts by Samuel England, published by the University of Edinburgh Press in 2017. Thank you uh, so much, Sam, uh, for this wonderfully rich, uh, nuanced uh, and fantastic work and for your time today in uh, sharing some of your thoughts with our listeners. I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you again uh, for this book. Oh, you're, you're, you're most welcome. It's been a real pleasure, Shirali, and it's, it's, it's great to uh, talk with you once again after all these years. Thank you. So this was my conversation with Professor Samuel England about his wonderful new book, Medieval Empires and the Cultures of Competition. I hope you enjoyed this episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. And I also hope that you will join us next time for another fresh episode of your favorite podcast on the New Books Network, New Books in Islamic Studies. Until then, this is your host, Sher Ali Tareen, signing off. Take care, stay well, and please keep listening to new books in Islamic studies.